0: Damn it. Damn it. Whoa.
1: Hello and welcome to the Collier Democratic Roundup, the official podcast of the Collier County Democratic Party. My name is Jeff Spencer. I'm the vice chair of the Collier County Democratic Party and the host of this podcast. Thank you guys for clicking on. On this week's podcast, we have both Democratic candidates for Florida House District 105, candidate Maureen Porras and candidate Javier Estevez. This district is very important this election cycle as there are actually more registered Democrats than Republican within the district and the incumbent Anna Maria Rodriguez is stepping down and running for a Florida State Senate seat. So it's an open seat, and we we desperately need to flip this seat, and we have two awesome candidates who will do just that. As always, we have our panel discussion with Amber and Linda. Uh, This episode, we look at the local protest over Oaks Farms and the controversial comments made by the owner, Alfie Oaks, We dig into the explosion of coronavirus cases here in Florida and the decisions by the governor to continue reopening without precautions. And finally, we talk about voting rights and the effects, both negative and positive, that Republican efforts to restrict voting access across the country is likely to have come November. But before we get into both of those things, let's dive into some local party info. We are very excited to announce that all of our local candidates qualified and will be on the ballot this November. Obviously, we have two races Florida House District 105, as I mentioned earlier, as well as U.S. House District 19 that have primaries. So both of those races will be on the ballot in August on the primary and the winner of the August primary will move on to the general election. But we have candidates in all of the Florida legislative seats running this election cycle. And this mirrors a trend across the entire state where Democrats are competing in every single legislative seat except for one. There is one Florida House seat that does not have a Democrat running, but outside of that one particular seat, every other seat that is on the ballot has a Democrat running in it. And we're contesting every seat to make sure that voters hear progressive values, but along with that, Democratic candidates who are contesting Republican incumbents hold those incumbents accountable for their record. The only way that voters hear about decisions that Republican incumbents have made a lot of times is through the election process when a Democrat runs against them and calls them out for many of their decisions. As we know here in Southwest Florida, the decisions made by local representatives don't always get reported on in the Naples Daily News or on the local news channel. And so the only time that voters have an opportunity to hear a differing opinion or an alternative option is when the election comes around and there's a candidate running against them. So voters need to hear about these decisions made by the incumbents, and the best way to highlight those decisions that they've made is by directly confronting them in an election. So we'd like to extend our sincere congratulations to all of the candidates here in Collier County and all of the Democratic candidates across the state who qualified and who are running this election season. And in an effort to support our candidates, we will be putting on candidate spotlights for our candidates who do not have a primary challenge and a candidate forum for Florida House 105, which does have a primary. These spotlights will begin on June 30th, and county commission candidate for District 5, David Turu biartes will be our first candidate up for that. So that's on June 30th and we will do one candidate spotlight a week for the next five weeks so that all the Democratic voters get to hear and know their local candidates. The Collier County Democratic Party, in honor of Juneteenth, uh, will be doing a multi-location voter registration drive around Collier County, and that is June 19th, the holiday for Juneteenth. We will have volunteers at multiple locations around the county all of which will be wearing appropriate PPE and observing social distancing guidelines to try and register as many people as we can. So if you know anyone who is not registered and is eligible to vote, please encourage them to register. This election is way too important to have anyone sit out. As always, there are many, many ways you can step up and volunteer. We have virtual phone banks going on throughout the month, and we encourage everyone to get involved in that. Our voter protection team is always in need of more volunteers who are willing to be inside the polling locations on election day or on early voting, or to be a poll greeter where they stand outside at the polls, hand out literature, and look for any type of activities that is not supposed to happen. All of this information about volunteering and the events that are coming up can be found on our website, www.callyardems.org. That's www.callyardems.org org so that's all for the news this week we'll be right back with our interviews with javier estevez and maureen porrest
2: if you guys are interested in hearing more about what's going on with the local democratic party the florida democratic party local candidates events when they are possible again and local news there are a number of ways you can hear from us you can sign up for our monthly newsletter, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or just check in at our website for all the local Democratic Party info. You can find all of these signups on our website at www.collierdems.org. That's www.callyourdems.org. Thank you for all your support.
1: All right, today on the podcast, we have Democratic candidate for Florida House 105, Javier Estevez, with us. Javi, thank you very much for being here. Really appreciate it. So uh, we're going to go ahead and, and jump right into this. Let's let's talk about what it would mean to flip this particular seat in the Florida House. Talk to me about the importance of, of doing that.
3: So what it would mean is that we finally finished what we started in um 2018 cuz you know when i ran back in 2018 we were a really small grassroots campaign um with little money and uh, like not a lot of name recognition and a lot of people thought we were crazy for running here because everybody thought oh it's such a republican seat it's such a red seat it's never going to flip but we you know we did the hard work we knocked on thousands and thousands of doors and we talked to thousands of voters and even though we were outspent 60 to 1, we came within 417 votes of flipping this district that nobody ever even paid attention to. This election, we come in stronger. We come in more ready than ever to finish what we started in 2018 and finally flip it. And it's one of the most flippable seats in the state, number one, because of what we did, and number two, of the changes in demographics. Even though it includes parts of Naples and you know up into Broward County and parts of Miami-Dade, the, the demographic shifts and the population increases have steadily and little by little increased our Democratic registration, which, you know, just before the presidential preference primaries was the first time the Democrats outnumbered Republicans in this district in, vote, in voter registration. So we see the change. And this year in particular is so important that we flip as many seats as possible and try to take that majority in the state house. Because... You know, not only do we have all the issues happening with the unemployment crisis and affordable housing and environmental crisis, education, you know, all these issues that we've been talking about for so long, but on top of that, we're redrawing our districts in 2021. So we need to make sure that we take that GOP majority away or chip away at it as much as possible um, because we can't afford another 10 years of a GOP majority. You know, we don't have 10 more years we have now. And that's when it matters
1: yeah and I completely agree everyone who's listening these lines were drawn back in two thousand and ten, and in ten years, as Javi just said, the demographics and the voter registration numbers have flipped so we know if we don't if we're not able to flip this seat in this election, most likely they're going to redraw these lines so that that district no longer has the Democratic majority that it does so this this is a, a huge election not just for this seat but for across The entire state of florida in in terms of local elections and getting state representatives let's move on what are the um what are the changes and the issues that your campaign are fighting to implement what do you plan on trying to accomplish once you get elected
3: well number one i plan on being the first effective legislator that this district has ever had and when i say effective i mean a representative that's going to go up to tallahassee and pass legislation that helps not only the people of our community and of District 105, but in Florida altogether. You know, we we all have our own separate issues, especially in a district as wide as District 105. You know, we have in Doral um, the issue with Medley Doral dump. Up north in Miami-Dade and going into Miramar, we have the mine blasting that's destroying homes. In Naples, we have the blue-green algae issues and the environmental and water issues. And we also have an issue with affordable housing because parts of my district, the parts of Naples that covers my districts are those areas where we need affordable housing the most. So it's not only about focusing on those community issues, but making sure that we push forward on the big issues that affect every single Floridian. Like it's finally time that we expanded Medicaid to cover over 850,000 people in this state that don't have health care. And to top it off, I have a plan to expand access to kid care, which is gonna be the first piece of legislation that I introduced um, so we can make sure that every kid in the state is covered by kid care and that we increase the maximum amount that a family can make in one year so we can increase the amount of kids that are fully covered by kid care. Um, it's about addressing affordable housing and making sure that not only is the Sandusky Fund fully funded, but that we're using those funds in the proper way. You know, it, it's, it's about environmental issues. It's about standing up for what's right It's about standing up for civil justice reform, which right now we see all over the country and all over the world that people aren't going to take it anymore. And it's time that we start legislating out the hate, the bias and the prejudice and the discrimination that has been legislated into our laws, especially in the state of Florida. And one of the most important laws that we need to repeal is stand your grounds because that has been used as a defense for people that have hunted down and murdered people of color. And, you know, we just need a representative that is willing to take action, that is willing to fight, that won't give up, and is willing to speak out when needed. And I've proven that in my last three and a half years of running for office and the last 17 years of being an activist.
1: Right. So with the unrest that you've mentioned now uh, that's going on across the country regarding the protests of the murder of George Floyd, Uh, but also with the uh, rampant spread of COVID-19 that is, that has been documented recently Mm -hmm. here in Immokalee talk about the importance of this moment in terms of electing a representative. What is the importance of this moment for this particular community with everything that's going on right now?
3: So what I like to point out is that, you know, none of this is brand new, you know, um, People getting sick and not having the health care that they need isn't new. Um, people not being able to get their unemployment benefits isn't new. People being discriminated against and our laws working against certain people of color isn't new. It's just put in the mainstream and right of faces right now because of COVID and because of what has transpired with police brutality recently. It's just that a majority of people are not feeling it. So it's time that we had legislators that were going to Tallahassee and we're working in our favor. What we've been seeing in the last 22 years of this GOP majority is that they don't have our best interests at heart. They're not legislating to make our lives better. We, we can see that when you don't expand Medicaid and when you do constant cutting of the budget so that the health department isn't getting the resources that they need. We weren't even ready two years ago for a hepatitis B outbreak, let alone a pandemic of the, of the size of COVID-19. And especially in communities like Immokalee that always get ignored from both the local municipalities, from the state legislator, all the way up to the federal offices. So we need representatives that don't just talk a good game when it's time for, that, for you to vote for them. We need legislators that are willing to fight, willing to speak up, and willing to do whatever they need to do in order to pass legislation that helps us in the long run. And the number one thing we need to do, because obviously our current representatives aren't interested in doing it, is going up to Tallahassee. And when we start session, we need to fix the unemployment system in the state. People are not getting paid their benefits. The benefits are way too low. And the amount of time that they can take advantage of those benefits is way too low also. We need to start focusing on people of Florida and not the corporations and big donors anymore.
1: Javier, where can people find you? Where can they reach out to you? Where can they get involved? Tell everybody how they can get in touch with you.
3: Absolutely. So it's going, our website is going to be Javier4105.com. That's four F-O-R spelled out. Our Facebook and Instagram is Javier4Florida. And our Twitter is Javier4Florida. Um, so go on, join us. We're doing phone banking, tax banking, postcard writing, we are on the ground and we're ready to flip District 105 blue.
1: Awesome. So uh, thank you so much for coming on, Javier. We really appreciate it. And uh, Thanks, Jeff. So today on the podcast, we have Maureen Porras, who is the Democratic candidate for District, Florida House District 105 here. Uh, Maureen, thank you very much for coming on.
4: Thank you, Jeff, and Call Your Dems for having me. It's a pleasure to be on.
1: So, uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to everybody listening and tell us a little bit about why you are
4: running? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, again, my name is Maureen Porras and I'm a candidate for state representative in District 105. I am running to bring a voice to the issues and the people that are often ignored and neglected. And that's exactly what I've been doing for the last 11 years. I have dedicated my career to serving families and, and vulnerable populations. And I actually currently represent families through a global nonprofit where I serve as the managing attorney and, and director of immigration legal services. I am actually an immigrant myself. My parents fled an oppressive government and they, they spared me from, from living in a communist country. My, my mother actually came to the US before me she she left when I was six months old, and, and I wasn't reunited with her until the age of seven. And she worked hard to bring me and my sisters to the U.S. She she cleaned houses, she cooked, and she did whatever she needed to reunite us. And while I did not have the privilege of being born in the U.S., I, I fully appreciated and understood the sacrifices that my parents made to bring me to this country. So, I have been fully committed to taking advantage of every opportunity available to me to create a better life for myself and for others. And and that's why I chose a career in law and, and to represent vulnerable populations. So South Florida has been my home for over 23 years. I am a proud graduate of our public school system. I worked all through high school because my family needed my financial support. I also worked full-time while attending Florida International University full-time. I was actually the first member of my family to graduate college. I graduated from FIU with a political science degree, and I later put myself through law school. And I think as most people know, during the last four years, immigrants have been under a full-blown attack by this administration. And through my work, I have seen numerous human rights and due process violations, and while I have been successful in fighting harmful policy, sometimes the laws were not on our side. And I, I realized that in order to fight these harmful policies, I needed to do more. And I realized that we need a change within the legislature so that harmful policies, you know, would never be allowed to become policy in the first place. And, and that's why I'm running. And, and as a legislator, I will represent District 105 with the same conviction and commitment that I use to represent families.
1: Yeah. So you talked about some of those policies that have not uh, supported or defended the rights of the marginalized communities. Let's talk about your platform. Tell us a little bit about what you would be fighting for and what, what type of policies you'd be pursuing.
4: Yeah. So as a legislator, I will focus on investing in our public schools reforming our criminal justice system, and really ensuring social justice, equality, and and protection for all. And, you know, this includes providing teachers and school staff with a wage that is reflective of the important role that they have in our society. I I really want to make sure that every child has access to a quality education and an opportunity to excel and succeed regardless of their their gender, their race, or their socioeconomic status. And I want them to have the same opportunities that I had to get ahead in life. My platform also focuses on reforming the criminal justice system. And that has been part of my platform since the day I launched my campaign. And Jeff, I have to tell you that a couple of weeks ago, before the heinous murder of George Floyd and before all the demonstrations, someone mentioned that perhaps Collier residents were not really that concerned with criminal justice reform or, or with having returning citizens regain their right to vote. Well, um, after, after all the demonstrations, I think the residents of Collier County beg to differ. We, we really need major criminal justice reform. And, and I plan on making sure that it comes from our legislature and that we reform the state attorney's offices and the police departments so that we can really work towards ending mass incarceration, which is a huge problem here in Florida. You know, I I wanna end racial profiling and, and police brutality. And then finally, I will also be committed to protecting our environment and water quality and transitioning to renewable energy. As a candidate, I have been committed to learning about those issues you know, I even joined a, uh, an environmentalist uh, leadership class that's, that was given by Catalyst Miami, and I've learned so much, and, I, and I've learned a lot of things that can be useful to help our district. I know that renewable energy, it needs to be done in a just way, and it's not going to be easy, but it's also going to help create jobs. And as we create jobs, I want to ensure that we're also protecting workers' rights and providing them with a livable wage.
1: Why do you think or what makes you the best candidate for District 5? Tell us about why you think you should be representing the constituents of Florida House District 105.
4: Yes. So this year we have a great opportunity to win the seat. And we're going to need a strong and viable candidate with a proven record of serving our community. We need a candidate that will be committed not only to reaching out to Democratic voters, but also the 30% of NPAs that make up District 105. Jeff, this district is not Republican. It's It's a very deep purple district that's very flippable. In fact, it was equally as flippable in 2018. And I believe that I'm the right candidate because I can bring in the votes that we left in 2018. And I can do that because my background and experience can help me do that. I am a community leader through my role as the director of the legal department of a nonprofit. I have built relationships with several community organizations and leaders, and even the state of Florida, whom we have contracts with. And since launching my campaign, I have also successfully reached out to hundreds of voters, built strong coalitions with community leaders and organizers and very importantly, key elected officials within the district who support my candidacy. And, you know, earning their trust and support is important. I have also been committed to fundraising because we need funds to run a campaign. And I I really do think I'm the best qualified candidate to take on the Republican nominee. And again, I'm very committed to bringing in the votes to finally flip District 105. I don't think that we can do the same thing that we did in 2018 and expect um, a different result or to win.
1: Awesome. So thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. And if anyone wants to find out where they can support Maureen and her candidacy, you can always go to our website, callyourdems.org. We have links to all of them. But Maureen, why don't you uh, end by telling everybody where they can go to, to help out? Yeah,
4: absolutely. So my website is very easy. It's maureenporras.vote. That's M-A-U-R-E-E-N P-O-R-R-A-S dot V-O-T-E. You can definitely reach out to us through my website. I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you, Jeff, for having me. I really appreciate your
0: time. We know that everyone is going through a tough time right now, and many have lost their jobs or have had their pay cut because of the pandemic. Your local Democratic Party is a fully volunteer force of dedicated Democrats who are continuing to work hard to defeat Donald Trump and elect Democrats up and down the ballot for this November. This election is the most important of our lifetime, and we see how important it is to have competent and effective leadership in all areas of government, from the White House to the State House. Every donation to the Collier County Democratic Party supports Democratic candidates here in Collier County and helps us to educate, register, and motivate voters to get to the polls. Please go to www.collierdems.org. That's www.collierdem.s org and click on the red donate button to help. We thank you for your support.
1: All right, on today's podcast, we want to welcome back Amber and Linda. Hey, guys.
2: Hey, Jeff. Hi there.
1: So uh, we're going to go ahead and dive into a couple topics. They include Alfie Oaks and his Facebook rant and subsequent protests. We're going to look at the coronavirus spikes that are happening here in Florida, and we'll dive into some of the voting issues that are happening around the country. But uh, let's start with the Alfie Oaks situation. And Linda, do you want to go ahead and explain what happened?
2: Sure, I do. So Alfie Oaks is a local business owner here in Naples, and he took to social media a few weeks ago to denounce what he feels is the hoaxes of COVID-19 and Black Lives Matter. It was nice to see that a lot of the Collier County residents finally were unhappy and displayed their dissatisfaction with his words by creating a change.org petition to have him not have a couple contracts with our school system and then Lee County school system. And there's been a lot of local media coverage about it, a lot of social media interaction with Mr. Oaks. I can read the first paragraph, which was kind of set the ball rolling. I, I really want our listeners to understand that Mr. Oaks actually posted this diatribe on his personal Facebook page. And then when it started garnering quite a bit of attention, he actually took it down, but then he reposted it and he edited it. Some of, of the content. So I'm going to read you the first post, and the first paragraph should kind of give you an indication of, of the direction of his thoughts. So the COVID 19 hoax did not work to bring down our great president, and now this, the Black Lives Matter race hoax. Really, I want you to know that was in shouty capitals what else do the disgraceful powers that control the world with their puppets in the media have planned for us in the next five months? Is it possible that so many of our fellow American citizens could really be this ignorant? And then, of course, he went on from there. Um, I think more egregiously, he liked to point out the fact that George Floyd didn't have a spotless record and uh, seemed to intimate that that was the reason why these things happened to him.
1: You know, within that post, he kept commenting on George Floyd's actions prior to his murder somehow justified what happened to him. He kept saying stuff like, your actions have consequences. Yes. He kept saying things like that. And in not just the original post, but then as people started to comment on the post and criticize him for what he had said... His response to them was oftentimes actions have consequences. And what I find interesting is that ever since this controversy started, he has gone out into the media and on social media and has tried to backtrack some of it, not all of it, but some of it and suggest that he's not racist and seems to be upset with the consequences that have befallen him for his actions. And I just think that this is something that we see all the time, especially with people who say racist things. They complain about their freedom of speech being impinged. And I just I think people need to remember, freedom of speech does not mean freedom of consequences. Alfie Oaks has the right to say stupid, racist, ignorant things online or in person. And none of his rights to say those things has been infringed upon. Free speech doesn't mean freedom of consequences. Like, it's, you can say whatever you want. It means
0: the government can't come and arrest you for saying what you're saying. But I,
1: has, I have free speech as well, which means I can protest you and I can say I'm not going to come and buy from you. When a government, into, this is another thing, when the government, like the school board, they have to represent everyone who is within their district. They can't represent just the people who agree with you. And so when you make a statement that offends a large portion of a particular entity, they have to say, well, look, we're not going to participate in this because we can't be seen as having taking sides on this issue.
0: Yeah, Mm. but racism is not going to be... Profitable. (laughs) Yeah, racism is not
1: profitable. Racism is not Uh, profitable. Very much At least, hopefully, it's not profitable.
2: Well, I think truly because the Collier County is such a microcosm of strong Republican sentiment, I feel he feels that it's actually a pretty decent business practice, especially when Republicans outnumber Democrats two to one in this county. And let us be clear too, which is what I've argued with a couple people about, he has been posting these things, but what even makes me want to take a shower more and cleanse myself is the comments that people are posting to these to these ideas that he's trying to propagate? It is it is it is kind of a study in in white supremacy. It's unbelievable, and that makes me shudder even more.
0: Well, I just to add to I know Linda read the beginning of the post and it is quite long, so we just certainly don't need to reread through it. But just to get a little bit more on the racial aspect, like you had said, he's been saying. Somewhat controversial things for many years. At least this time, he posted it on his personal page. In the past, he had posted these rants on his business, uh, either Seed to Table or Oaks Farm Market page. You know, when I read this initially, I literally my mouth was agape at some of the stuff. Like I was just shocked. But he says there's absolutely no dispute that George Floyd was a disgraceful career criminal, thief, drug addict, drug dealer, and ex-con who served five years in prison for armed robbery on a pregnant woman and spent his last days passing around fake 20s to store owners in Minnesota. Our new media hero, in quotes, Gentle George, had two types of heart disease due to tremendous amount of illegal drugs he was taking daily. In his autopsy, he tested positive for marijuana, fentanyl, amphetamine, morphine, methamphetamine, and several others. When Officer Chauvin responded to the 911 calls, That someone was passing counterfeit 20s to the store pointed out Floyd, who was sitting in the car across the street when Officer Chauvin confronted Floyd and asked him to get out of the car. Floyd refused and was not cooperating with the officer, a 20-year public servant who was unlucky enough to be the one having to deal with this drug-addicted criminal, a true disgrace to our human race that represents all that is wrong with our society. Floyd continued to resist arrest. Resist the officers during orders during this incident, as you would expect from a mindless drug addict. Now the media, Hollywood, and many of our disgraceful politicians want you to be outraged that this career criminal, drug-abusing thug suffered the consequences of a lifetime of bad choices.
2: I don't know what other way to read that except to say that Mr. Oaks believes that George Floyd got what he deserved, meaning... absolutely it was neck for over eight minutes I don't I don't think there's another way to read that
0: yeah and I just want to point out that some of that information that he mentions in there regarding George Floyd's record is exaggerated and um, misrepresented for sure but again that does not really matter because the the police department is not the judge and jury in this country and they do not get the right to decide whether or not a person can be convicted on the street of a crime they may or may not have committed or of past crimes they may have or may not have committed.
1: It doesn't uh, matter. If, if he had been it putting out 20s, it, it doesn't all of a sudden make us say, oh, well, I can see why he, he kneeled on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds until he died. This is the problem is that Mr. Oaks Goes on that rant and says all those things in some way to suggest to people that, oh, well, don't blame the police officer. Think about how bad this guy was. But if you watch the video, the knee is literally on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds while he cries out until he dies. It doesn't matter what his previous actions were in his life, not to mention The reason why Alfie Oaks had to change that post, because Amber read what was the original iteration of it, he had since edited it, but one of the reasons why Alfie Oaks presumably changed it is because not only was he getting pushback from the more progressive portion of the county, he was getting pushback from conservatives, some religious conservatives, who had been in the prison system and were stating to him, look, man, I went to prison. I had drug crimes on my record, but I didn't deserve to die. And thank God the police didn't do that to me when I was making poor decisions. You're making it sound like because you did something wrong in the past, you're forever doomed to whatever the police want to do. That That's ridiculous. Not to mention, there is no suggestion that all of these things are true about George Floyd. But again, it doesn't, it doesn't matter whether or not it's true or not. You don't kill a man for handing out counterfeit $20 bills. You don't. And if it was a white person doing it, he wouldn't have been put on the ground nope. and, and had his knee on the neck for that long. It just wouldn't have happened. So this whole argument is just what whataboutism. It's pointing to something else to try to make people think that the the action of the police officer was justified. It wasn't justified. It was wrong. It was it was beyond wrong. It was absolutely amazingly horrendous, so much so that it's galvanized the entire American community in a way that hasn't happened since the 1960s.
2: It's important to note also that in the second iteration of his Facebook post, he changed some of his wording to position himself to support the police none of which was in his first Facebook post so I found that interesting the spin that he was giving and and he also changed some of his wording to reflect some of the monuments that are being taken down some by choice a lot not you know they're being taken down by citizens of our country and thirdly uh in his other post, he brought up a African-American police officer who was murdered in her car in New York City. And Mr. Oaks falsely said that the protesters had done this in New York City just recently. That had been going around Facebook. And it is important to note that that poor officer was killed three years ago in 2017 by a mentally ill person. That had nothing to do with any of the recent protests. That is something that I'm seeing a lot in conservative media. And that is something that is just categorically untrue.
1: It's comical that that you would say, oh, I'm not racist. I'm just standing up because I don't think we should take down statues of people who fought for slavery. Like, it just doesn't make any sense.
0: Many of those statues were put up 100 years after the end of the Civil War. So they were putting up Confederate statues well after this war was over. The specific purpose was white supremacy.
1: Yeah, it was to intimidate African Americans. It's ridiculous. In my opinion, anybody who defends racist Confederate statues, they say it's because of we're tearing down our history, but they don't even know the history of why the statue is there. So anyway, yeah. not to mention, speaking of lying, Alfie Oaks is lying about the fact that he has had people on his farm die from COVID in the last two weeks. We've seen articles now from Fox News and, and mm-hmm. Salon.com report that it seems like there is a, a, a little bit of a habit here, a little bit of a trend of Mr. Oaks whenever he anything negative happens around him or his business to change the subject, change the facts, lie about it to get people to stop paying attention to how he runs his business and how he runs his life evidently.
0: And I think Alfie has been posting since the beginning of this pandemic about how the COVID is a hoax and the media is just basically making this stuff up and that people didn't have to worry. I know he was, At the beginning of this, when they started putting some precautions into place for businesses, obviously his was an essential business, so he never had to permanently close, but they were putting in precautions. And I know that he was warned at one point to put precautions in place because he was not doing that. In fact, still today, it says if you take a walk through Alfie Oak's store in Seed to Table, most of the employees, including the staff, that are serving the public are not wearing masks, which is against the CDC guidelines right now. And this worker that he had was confirmed by a couple other workers that he did indeed work out at Oaks Farm. And uh, his name is Paulino Salinas Cortez, and he died from COVID.
1: Yeah, and I think this is a nice transition into our next topic, which is the spike in COVID cases that we're seeing in the state of Florida, you know, it's it's funny how over the last 3 to 4 weeks we've seen how COVID has taken a back seat. You don't see the news articles, you don't see the news media covering much of what's going on with that, but here in the state of Florida, we have seen a dramatic increase in new cases. And to, to put this in perspective, back on May 1st when Governor DeSantis reopened the state, the average per day of new cases was roughly around 500 new cases per day. And then today, June 14th, it came out that 2,050 new cases. So right now, we are looking at an average seven-day rolling average of roughly 1,500 new cases every single day. That is three times what we were when we opened back up on May 1st. And some other things to think about when you're looking at this the positivity rate has risen from roughly around two and a half percent to five point three percent the hospitalization rate this is according to John Hopkins on their website who's doing the most one of the more robust tracking efforts their hospitalization rate for the state of Florida over this entire time period is sixteen percent so sixteen percent of all covid cases are having to be hospitalized so We can expect to see 16% of each every day's cases be hospitalized, and it's only a matter of time before hospitals start getting overrun and there's not enough bed spaces. Lee Health is currently reporting the highest level of COVID patients in their hospitals. They are having more people come in with symptoms, and they have more people waiting for beds than they've ever had during the entire time of this pandemic. And the Miami Herald did a report in which – they reviewed all of the increases that we're seeing over the last two, three weeks since we've been opening up into the full capacity where we're opening up movie theaters, we're opening up bars. Cases in that time period have increased by 42%. And the common refrain coming from Governor DeSantis is that, well, the increases are reflected in increased testing capacity, that we're just testing more. Well, the Miami Herald said, Cases increased by 42%, but testing during that period only increased by 8% during that same period. So we went up by 42% in the number of cases, but the increase in testing only went by 8%. So it's pretty clear given where the new cases are going, that the positivity rate is going up, that the hospitalization rate is, is way up there. The question I wanna ask you guys is, do you guys think that people have just accepted that we're gonna have tons of deaths, like 350,000 deaths nationwide from this disease? Or do you think that people are just, because of the lack of media attention, are just not thinking about it and hoping everything will be fine?
0: I I think that there is a large number of people who have who have got it in their mind through messaging or just willful ignorance that this is not that big of a deal. It's a big media hoax. I think there's unfortunately just a large amount of the population, the me people, I'll call them, the people who are concerned about me. How does this affect me? And if it doesn't affect them or somebody that they know personally, I think they're not going to believe it and, or not going to care. So when you're seeing hundreds of thousands of deaths and potentially more as this keeps going on, I don't think people care unless it affects them. And I guarantee if, if and when it does affect them, they'll be the ones crying the loudest about how systems not working or all these other things, and they're not taking precautions. So I don't think it's the lack of coverage in the media because come on, it's yes, it's been less, but I think it's the direction of our government. When your government is saying, oh, it's okay to go eat. Yeah, it's it's now it's safe to go to movie theaters and bars like they are deeming that that it's safe and people are following the the lead.
2: So I think also it's important to note, too, that in this county in Collier County where let's just say we have been lucky. Our numbers are not crazy in obviously you know, not like what's happening in Immokalee for a variety of reasons that we have talked about before. But here in Collier County, the numbers aren't indicative of potentially what's happening in other areas. So I feel like when I go out to the grocery store, and I I make a mask count, and I'm one of the five people that are wearing a mask, I think that's what's being reflected. I think that they aren't seeing it, they don't see it. And three, their government is saying that everything's okay. The
0: stores that I've been going to anyways, I feel like it's probably 85% of the people are wearing masks. So I've been pretty happy at the, I'm not going out to many places, but the ones I've seen, people are still wearing masks. But I have noticed in the last week or so that the stores are a little more crowded and less people are wearing masks. And I think what happens is if there's people that are on the fence, maybe they were wearing a mask right at the, You know the height of everything, and they start to see less and less like, oh, well, that guy's not wearing a mask. Oh, well, it starts to make it seem like it's it's safer for them. And and I think you're only going to get that if that's what you already want to believe anyways. Not that any of us want to believe that there's a dangerous virus out there that we need to protect ourselves and our loved ones and our community from. I mean, nobody wants to, to believe that. But then there's this thing called science, and you know, if you read what the studies are saying, you know for sure, you look at the numbers, this has not gone away. This has not only not gone away, but it is more than it was at the time when we were being more cautious. I read this article from NPR about the fact that this is not the second wave. Some people are saying, well, the numbers are going up, maybe this is the second wave. This is not the second wave. We are still in our first wave. So, essentially, what we did with all the closings, we were able to drop the initial spike and we dropped it down to an average at the peak. We were about 31,000 new cases at the beginning of April, and we were able to drop it to around 22,000 on average by mid May. And essentially, what we've done is with all those distancing measures we were able to drop the infection rate. If you've read much about this virus, they talk about the reproduction number or the R number. So if it's at one, that means that every person that's infected will infect one other person. And so that keeps it kind of steady. So it's not decreasing, but it's not increasing. And um, they estimate at the height of this, we were probably a little bit above two. So that for every person that gets it, you're going to infect two other people. Well, now those two people are gonna infect two other people. So now you have four. Um, well, really six if you add everybody together. But and as you see, it goes exponential. It's like an exponential sum. But now we were able to get the R down to a little bit under 1, which means we were seeing a slow decline. It was very close to 1, though. So it was, it was declining, but it was staying steady. And what they've noticed in the last month, since mid-May, since things have started to reopen, that in many states, Florida included, we're seeing that number rising above 1 again. And that's why you're seeing these spikes now. So it has nothing to do with the the second wave. The whole thing with the second wave is that if we had a dying off because of the warmer weather, whether that be because the virus doesn't survive in the warm weather or that people are just not indoors as much during that time of the year, that you usually start to see a second wave in around September through February. That's historically when that would happen. So we have not even gotten there yet. And we're already seeing numbers go back up.
1: Yeah, not to mention that the United States has been historically bad compared to other nations during this pandemic. When you look at, we are 4% of the world's population, and we have 27% of the deaths. For this virus, I mean, that that it's is insane. it's insane. And it's partly because not going to sugarcoat it. Republicans, the president, our governor, all want to believe that if they ignore this, that it will go away and they can just convince people to go about their normal lives and that the virus will be ignored. It will be for a little bit. But just like climate change, the virus does not care whether you believe in it or not. And it is going to continue to infect people. And, you know, Amber, I go around and see a little bit different uh, subset of our community, and I can say that I am seeing no No. no use of social distancing, no use of masks in restaurants by the workers of the restaurant, by The people frequenting the restaurant, nobody is wearing any masks and people are acting as if we've beaten this. And I think we're going to find out very soon here because people have to remember that the testing that we have right now reflects what happened about 10 days ago, because it takes about seven to 10 days on average for symptoms to develop.
0: Yeah, And And then by the time they go get tested and then get the results back, you're probably closer to two weeks, really. Correct. By the time you get an actual Result. positive. Yeah.
1: And so, again, this is extremely frustrating because we just did this two months ago. Like, we're explaining this again to people. This is literally what happened in March and April. So even if we implemented the same measures we did back in April, we would have roughly 10 days to two weeks more of spiking numbers.
0: Well, and I think that the question is, what... What do people think is a satisfactory amount of people dying from this? Which, you know, I would say as few as humanly possible. But basically, if things stay on track to what we are right now, if we keep that R number where it is, that infection rate, we're going to continue seeing about 25,000 to 30,000 additional deaths every month. We're at about 800 deaths a day in this country on average. So twenty-five thousand to thirty thousand deaths per month if we're staying where we are. How is that not shocking to people?
2: How I, I, is that acceptable? Because they don't yeah. do math, uh, Amber. We've already talked about this. They don't do math, it math is. is not their strong suit. There's
0: something with large numbers that people just like their brains go fuzzy. And I think that's starting to happen with this and the just like, at eh, 30,000, 90,000, 200,000. Like, it's all the same to them.
2: It's also not coming from the top. I can't stress that enough. I mean, what's happening in the Oval Office right now, just an abject lack of empathy and leadership. And the person that needs to drive this information home on a national level is the President of the United States. And unfortunately, that is a vacuum. We do not have someone that is going to lead us through this particular crisis and be real about what's happening and, and look America in the face and say, this is what's happening and these are the numbers. And we do not have that right now.
1: So right now, he is now starting to schedule rallies around the country in which he does not want to see any masks. He does not want to see any social distancing. Here in Florida, he is has moved the Republican Convention, The Republican National Convention for President. They had moved it from North Carolina to Jacksonville. And the reason why they did that is because he wants a maskless, social distancing-less convention. And North Carolina would not guarantee them that. But here's the craven part about it. If you sign up to attend that rally and not wear a mask... You have to sign an agreement that says that you will not sue if you get coronavirus. And he is doing that for all of his rallies. And if that doesn't show you the disconnect and what he's actually doing, which is he doesn't care if you get coronavirus. He doesn't care if it continues to kill a thousand people every day. If it's January, February, and it's a thousand deaths every single day, that's 200,000 more deaths on top of the 117,000 that we have right now. So we're looking at 350,000 deaths, which, by the way, when those numbers were thrown out back in early March, people panicked. They were stunned. Oh, my God, we've got to do something. Now, it's a 1,000 people every day. The New York Times did a front page article where they wrote 1,000 people who died. It was the entire front page of the New York Times of just names of people who had died. They could do that every day. They could do that every single day. The headline of the New York Times could could be the entire page of names of people who died.
0: Well, you think about, like, if you've ever visited the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C., which is a very powerful piece of architecture, and you walk, and it just goes on and on and on, and every name is there, and it's really powerful. But right now, we could have two Vietnam Memorial walls of just this. And it's been what four months, you know, the Vietnam war was six, seven years. Four months, It's yeah.
1: And one month was with strict quarantine. Another factor of this, of the spike that's coming up is the effect that it can have on voting across the country come November. There was a NPR article that looked at voter registrations in Florida And found that in April, during the lockdown, voter registrations fell 60% compared to the same time period in the 2016 presidential election. So that's a significant reduction. And that disproportionately has hurt the Democratic Party, specifically because uh, younger voters become eligible and then they register to vote in a presidential election year. You throw in the fact that Donald Trump is still continuing to, to attack vote by mail, which is a safe, secure way of of voting and everyone here in Collier County and across the state should sign up to get vote by mail because it is the, the most sure way that you can cast your ballot come this election. You do not have to go to the polls if we're going to have a spike in coronavirus like everything suggests that we are. But Donald Trump is still saying that it's that it's fraud, even though he uses vote by mail to vote in Florida. He does not come and vote in person. He uses vote by mail, but it's a fraud when it is anywhere else. So you have all of these negative things going on with regard to COVID and the reduction in registrations and in terms of Republicans' efforts to disenfranchise voters, to Donald Trump's attack of the system with vote by mail or even defunding the post office and things like that that would really hurt. But then there's there's some positives, and we've seen studies that have shown that when voters see that leaders are trying to make it more difficult for them to vote or to take their right to vote away, what actually happens is voter participation goes up, not down. And we kind of saw that in Georgia most recently. So Georgia had a primary last week. It was a massive failure in terms of Georgia handling the voting systems. The poll, poll workers didn't show up. The poll machines, the new machines that were purchased didn't work. There were lines that stretched block by block. People were standing in line up until midnight in some polling locations. But what we just found, and NBC News just reported this, that even with all of those negative things going on in Georgia, three times the amount of people showed up to vote in the Democratic primary this year than they did in 2016. 960,000 Georgians showed up to vote at the polls compared with 310,000 people that showed up to vote in 2016 in the primary and 550,000 voted in 2018 in the primary so almost double what happened in 2018 came out to vote in this election so the question i want to ask you guys is do you think that the republicans in their efforts to implement voter restrictions do you think those are going to win out and the covid crisis is going to win out or do we think that all of these things are going to backfire and it's going to lead to an even larger turnout than what we would expect in this election
2: well i'm hoping that what we're seeing with all these movements you know brings forth a season of discontent and i'm hopeful that people ardently trying to exercise their their right to vote in georgia is a harbinger of what's to come nationwide i i can't help but be hopeful and maybe it's just because there's so much negative news right now and it was so disheartening to see Georgians have such a hard time casting their votes that you just have to admire their determination to do so.
1: I, I agree. I, I'm, I'm more optimistic than I am pessimistic when it comes to how voters are going to react. Given everything that's going on in the country, all of these different things going on, I, I just get the feeling that you're going to see people do everything they can to make sure that they vote. Now, we just need to make sure that everybody gets their vote-by-mail ballot. And I can't stress that enough. We have record amounts of, of vote-by-mail ballots going in here in Collier County. The Supervisor of Elections has notified us that at this point, they have roughly about 75,000 requests in for vote-by-mail ballots. That is about what we normally get in an election year total. So we have another four months of requests to come in. And we've been telling people that it's an insurance policy. You don't have to use it. Even if you're somebody who likes to go to the polls, you like the feeling, the civic feeling of being able to get in line and go and actually vote on election day. You can get a vote by mail ballot and it's just an insurance policy. That's all it is. It's a way that you can say, you know, if this is really bad and it's not safe for me to go out for me and it, or it's not in the best interest of those people who are vulnerable and have to go and vote because there are people who are really sick. They have certain conditions where their signature isn't consistent enough and they can't actually do a vote by mail ballot. They're forced to actually go into the polls. With COVID, those people are at high risk because of their conditions and having long lines and lots of people out there during a pandemic is not in their best interest. So it would be good to help your fellow citizen to not go and stand in line and fill out the ballot and send it in. And your vote gets counted before everybody else's. Supervisor of election requests from the canvassing board to start counting those ballots up to three weeks ahead of election day. And you can check it online. You can make sure that your, your ballot was received and then it will get counted and you know it will be counted. And we have people who meet with the supervisor of elections every single time they look at ballots. And we get a list of everybody who's been rejected, which is a remarkably small amount of, of, of people. There were only about 100 in the 2018 election that were rejected total out of roughly 40,000 ballots. So it's incredibly safe, incredibly easy. You get it nearly a month ahead of time and then you can send it in immediately and you're done. You don't have to worry about anything. And if you don't even wanna use the mail, you can go and drop it off. There's, they have nine drop off locations at every single early vote site or at the supervisor of elections. So if you don't even want to pay the stamp, you can hop in your car and drive down there and just drop it off.
0: And if for some reason you lose it, you can still vote on election day. As long as that ballot has not been received, basically whatever happens first, whether they receive your absentee ballot or you vote in person, once one of those happens, that's when you are are considered as voting. So as long as they have not received your absentee ballot, and, you, you know, let's say, you know, sometimes things get lost in the mail and you check, you'd send it out three weeks, a month, and you look on there and you're like, oh, gosh, they haven't marked it as being received. You can still go on the day of and vote. As long as that hasn't been received, you're, you're eligible yes. to vote Yes, and
1: you used to have to bring that ballot in when you, if you wanted to vote in person. You no longer have to do that. The system that they have in place links to the Supervisor of Elections website. If you show up to the polling location on Election Day you requested a vote by mail ballot, it simply checks the system to see if a vote by mail ballot has been returned in your name. If it has not been returned, they give you a ballot, you go and vote, that is your ballot.
2: I will say though, I'll say also that for the primary that just happened in March, I was out of town, so I requested my ballot and it was amazing. It took me just a couple minutes to fill it out and I put a stamp on it and I put it in the mail and it was fantastic.
1: All right, well, I think that's a a good place to stop and wrap it up. So, Amber, thank you so much for being on. Thanks, Jeff. And Linda, thank you so much. Thank you, Jeff. So that's our show. I want to thank Javier and Maureen for taking the time in a very busy and hectic campaign schedule. Thanks to Agent 13 for the theme song. Please remember to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We have only 136 days left until Election Day. Please, please help us. We really need everyone to stand up and do what's right this election season. Hope everyone's staying safe out there. Until next time, so long.